views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Had a close one, eh? Yes, rather. Don't you sometimes wonder if it's worth all this? I mean, what you're fighting for. You might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. Now, what of it? It'll be out of its misery. You know how you sound, Mr. Blaine? Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Each of us has a destiny, for good or for evil. I get the point. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 23rd, 2012. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today, where we take an unusual diversion from our regular format. Bob Metz is not on the show today, but will return next week. Today I'd like to present an exclusive interview I took with Paul Weston, the chairman of the British Freedom Party. Mr. Weston was invited to speak in the United States and Canada by the International Free Press Society, and during his tour, he has been officially recognized in the legislature and the Senate of Tennessee and has given a talk in New York City. On Wednesday, he spoke at the Toronto Zionist Centre to a packed house. I caught up with Mr. Weston in Toronto on Sunday, hours before he was to give a speech to a select group of invited guests and supporters of the International Free Press Society. We talked about the formation of his party and its 20-point plan, and you can find the plan on the party's website at www.britishfreedom.org. While there are a few points I may disagree with, it does include many things which Bob and I have spoken in favor of on this show in the past, including the right to free speech, the abolishing of official multiculturalism, the threat of the Islamification of Western societies, and a reform of the progressive education system, as well as a strong armed forces and the end to foreign aid. As the interview will take the entire hour, we aren't ta- taking any calls today, but Bob and I will undoubtedly be talking about the British Freedom Party and Paul Weston on a future show, and would be happy to hear what you might have to say at that time. After the show, you can find a video of the interview on our new website at justrightmedia.org, and also on my own blog at robertvaughn.ca. You'll also find a video of the speech he gave to the International Free Press Society gathering in Toronto on Sunday evening. If you're interested in joining the International Free Press Society, I would encourage you to seek them out online at uh, www.ifpscanada.com. So, I hope you enjoy my talk with Paul Weston of the British Freedom Party. Here it is. Hello, so I'm joined today by Paul Weston, who is the leader of the British Freedom Party. That's right. Hello, Paul. Hello. Welcome. I'd like to um, start off by asking you, first of all, why the name freedom in the British Freedom Party? Where did, the, where did that come from? Well, we wanted to be linked with the uh, Gert Wilders Fre- uh, International Freedom Alliance. And freedom is being destroyed in Britain at the moment. Now, we've got the European Union, which is a, a very undemocratic organization. And we have Islam, which is encroaching everywhere. So. Freedom is freedom and democracy 
uh, really what we're about. So, so the name chimed on pretty much every single front we could think of. When you say linked to Herr Filder's Freedom Party in the Netherlands, um, what do you mean by that? What kind of a link? Is what, there any formal de- no, declaration? No, 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 there's not. It's just, uh, I mean, I hope there will be at some point in the future, but it's just, uh, it is just an informal uh, part of that whole organisation, you know, the the, uh, the René Stankiewicz in Germany and Heinz Christian Stracker in Austria, and we hope to become part of that sort of general umbrella group. Can you give us a bit of the history of the British Freedom Party? I know that it's a relatively new party and it's a breakaway party, at least from my understanding. Perhaps mm-hmm. you can fill us in. Well, they set up originally. They were, they were, they were part of. There were some BNP people, British National Party people, who broke away from the bit. Well, they didn't break away; they were expelled oh. because because they no longer wanted to be part of this uh, ethno-nationalist movement, and they had decided some time ago that there's nothing you can do about the situation in Britain in terms of in terms of race. You know, race is there to stay now, but you can do it about culture. So, you know, so their idea was you can have a multi-racial society. But you can't have a multicultural, multiracial society. It's got to be British culture, and it doesn't matter about the race. And this angered the leader of the BNP, who uh, who said, "No, no, it's got to be a whites-only policy." So they were expelled and set up uh, the new party, the British Freedom Party, in 2010, I think it was. And I was approached by them in uh, late 2011 uh, to, to to join them. And I said, I want to set up my own party. And they said, well, in that case, come and run this party. And I said, it's a lovely idea. It's a fantastic name. I like what you're doing. I like your stance. But you're ex-BMP. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid you are tainted as a result, even though what you're doing now is the, is the correct thing. And they said, we'll all stand down. We'll all stand down if you take it over. So I said, All the BNP people. Yeah. So is the taint that you're talking about one of racism itself? Is that how the general public sees the BNP as a racist party? Well, very much so, yes, because the BNP is a racist party. And uh, the media have gone out of their way over the years to, to, to not only get at the, at the high command, people like Nick Griffin, who, of course, is a, is a, he, he's actually a Holocaust denier. So you know, they're wide open to being smeared. But... Uh, when, when the media go for you like that over so many years, the name is never going to come back again. You know, they are unelectable as a result. So it, it was just absolutely impossible for them to... to well, they, they are continuing, but it should be impossible, impossible for them to keep on going. Now, you haven't run any candidates yet in a general election, have you? No. no so no. it's very hard to gauge what kind of support you'd have, is that... The- Or do you have any polls that might show how much support you'd have? Well, you know, the next election is going to be 2014, 2015, depending when they call it. But uh, there was a survey last year that actually outlined policies based exactly on what what our policies are. And they said if if you could find an organisation, a political party that had these views that didn't have an unpleasant history of uh, racial bigotry behind it, would you vote for them? And they said, well, if one existed, which it, which it didn't at the time, they said, of course we would, we'd love to. You know, these are the sort of things that we want, but we can't with the British National Party because of their, because of their background, which was a, a driving force for me at the time to think, well, this is what I think as well. You know, let's, uh, let's go ahead and set up a, 
a party like this. Now, what about the UK Independence Party? Do you have any association with them in the past at all? Well, I stood for the UK Independence Party in, 20, in the 2010 general election mm -hmm. for cities of London and Westminster. And there are, I agree with them on absolutely everything that they say, but they refuse to confront the Islamic question. No, they, they won't even talk about it, really. And when Lord Pearson was, was uh, in control, he did. And it was at that point that I joined them. And then when Lord Pearson stood down last year and was replaced by Nigel Farage, who, who's been the leader for many years, of course, but Nigel Farage will not talk about Islam. And at that point I thought, well, UKIP is clearly not for me anymore, so, so I, I left. Mm -hmm. You don't think that there would have been any opening at some point in the future for a person with your views about Islam to uh, gain a foothold in UKIP at all? Because they do have members in the European Union and the House of Lords, and I think they got 3.1% of the poll last 2010 election, is that right? No, they got, uh, they got, um, they had a million votes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it worked out to 3.2, but uh, it might well have done. But no, I mean, things are happening so fast in Britain now that, that by the time you eventually manage to sway UKIP into talking about these things, it's going to be three, four years down the line, perhaps, and, and that's going to be too late. And also there's the internal fighting and division. You know, Nigel Farage has basically said, you know, you will not talk about Islam. Is that right? Mm. Okay, so you didn't see any opening there whatsoever, at least with the current leadership? No, not at all. I see. And the issue is too pressing. Mm. to give it any more three or four years. Eh? No, exactly. Right. I mean, we're almost, we're almost too late now. Now, from my understanding, of course, on the Internet, which is not necessarily the most reliable source of information, there is about 8.5% of the population of London itself are Muslim. And I think I've, I've heard you say that it's probably far greater than that, given the shoddy way statistics are recorded and the mm. porous border that Great Britain has with mm. the rest of Europe. Um, is there a magic number where the population of uh, Muslims in a close society like a city of London um, starts to assert itself so politically that they get out of hand, start to affront the laws of the land? Well, 8.5% is you know they take it across the population as a whole they don't look at the at the at the demographic at the age demographic of it because muslims in london now might only be 8.5% but in the schools you know they're in certain schools they're 80% 90% in tower hamlets they're now almost 100% well tower hamlet isn't that sort of an enclave Almost a no-go zone, from what I understand, for non-Muslims. Well, it's the it's the first it's the first uh, part of London that's actually elected an Islamic mayor, and they now have their little Sharia zone stickers up everywhere: no homosexuals, no Jews, no alcohol, no smoking, which is a terrible thing. Uh, but yes, you know they uh, they when they get a sufficient mass, they make the area what. Exactly how they would like it to be, which is which is Muslim only and nobody else. Mm. Is there any other? Are there any other communities in London or in Great Britain that have the same ethnic uh, makeup as the Tower Hamlets? Well, you've got Bradford up north, which is now. Didn't they just elect a woman Muslim uh, mayor, or was that another community? No, that's a. I think that's a different. Uh, that's a different. 
community. Although I, I'm not sure, you might be right. But Bradford is now, is now roughly 50-50. And it's almost, it's like the Berlin Wall. You know, it's like there's a, a wall down the middle of the, of the town. And the Muslims live on one side and the, and, the, and the white British live on the other side. And they don't mix. They, you know, they don't mix at all. It's just a, a complete standoff situation. Do they participate in the culture at all, the, the Muslim population of these uh, hamlets, as no. it were? Not no. at all. Not at all. Except no. politically, perhaps? Well, politically, they are incredibly active. You know, far more active than the white Brits, really. So... Free speech is an issue of the International Free Press Society and, of course, of uh, the Freedom Party in Britain. But I think that of your 20-point plan, which we'll get into, there is one point where you're talking about sedition. Mm -hmm. Is there a a conflict there between allowing people to um, have their free say, have their point of view and express it, however repulsive it may be, and have laws which prohibit sedition or treason or even hateful speech, because I also noticed that you want to get rid of the Human Rights Act, mm. which would probably um, agree that people should not have hate speech, as they do here in Canada. Well, no, I, you know, the reason for getting rid of the Human Rights Act is not so much about the hate speech. At the moment, we've got, uh, for example, Abu Qatada. Abu Qatada is a, is a terrorist. He's, a, he's, wanted, uh, he's wanted in Jordan for terrorist crimes. We can't send him back to Jordan because they might torture him. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but they might. So in, in, in the interest of his human rights, he's now been let out of jail in Britain. It's going to cost us something like £10,000 a month to provide security for him. We're not going to deport him because that infringes his human rights. But in terms of uh, your initial question about sedition and free speech, mm-hmm. it, it's difficult, it's complicated. You know, in the old days, before, the, before all the hate speech laws came in, we had laws against sedition. And these, of course, have now been uh, dropped because of the Human Rights Act. But my personal view is that uh, if you are a foreign person in Britain, or like, a, like an imam that's been uh, bussed in from Saudi Arabia and he is calling for sedition against our country, then he should be arrested and he should be deported. If you are a native and you're calling for sedition, under the, under the human rights laws we can't do anything about it, but uh, I, I would like to see them prosecuted for sedition. Sedition is, to me, it's completely different to, to, to being able to speak the truth about a subject. You know, you're actually, when you're calling for sedition, you are calling for something physical to be done, whereas articulating the truth about Muhammad, for example, should not come under a hate speech law. Your Human Rights Act, I'm not familiar with it. Do you have, as we do in Canada and every province, human rights commissions which are charged with uh, conducting tribunals uh, or actually they're separate from the tribunals, but we have tribunals as well as commissions which um, have, well, how should I say this, ultraviaries. It's not within the uh, usual court system. No, no, it's not. I mean, do you based, have those as well? Yeah, we do. They're based in The Hague. So, so it, all of these things, yeah, I believe it's The Hague. It might possibly be in Strasbourg as well now. So they're not even local to Britain? No, no, they're not, no. So if a person would have... For example, um, some speech about a particular race or whatever, 
he wouldn't even been taken in front of his own peers in Britain. He'd have to go to The Hague to be tried against the Human Rights Act? No, I think that if you're sufficiently important, you might, you know, you might end up going to The Hague. But if you're, if you're this case of Emma West, who was on a, a, a tram in uh, uh, Croydon in London recently... And she was saying some 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 rude things about uh, the non-indigenous people, and she's been arrested and she's being tried for hate speech. And of course, this will happen in the you know, the at the Croydon magistrates or at the Crown Court. But if you're sufficiently important, then uh, then you will be spirited off to the Hague. But if you're if you're Joe Bloggs, you will just go to the local to the local Nick and then to the local court. So it sounds very very similar to unfortunately to what we have here in Canada with our tribunals. And our kangaroo courts. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where truth, truth is not a defense in these situations? Not anymore, no. So if you want to say something negative against Islam or Muhammad or any other religion, the fact that it may be true is not a defense? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. No, uh, Nick Griffin, I don't want, to, I don't want to, to, to talk too much about Nick Griffin, but when, before, the, before the 2005 London transport uh, suicide bombings, Griffin was making a speech... Um, near Dewsbury, uh, which, is, which is northern England. And he predicted during his speech that, uh, that, that we would be hit by suicide bombers and that they would probably come from within a 20-mile radius of where he was making his speech. And he was, uh, he was arrested and they tried him for inciting racial hatred. And when his defence said, listen, Islam is not a race, it's a religion, they introduced immediately new laws about inciting religious hatred and they tried him again retroactively yes which you know we have double jeopardy mm-hmm. rules but these were these were just overridden in the interest of shutting this man down that's quite amazing um, you've, you've called for a halting immigration in part of your 20 point plan for the next five years mm-hmm. if the problem is basically Islam Muslims, radical imams. Why halt all immigration, or is there a problem with population and the size of Britain? Well, of course, there's a, you know we uh, we're a we're a very small country. We're one percent of the world landmass, and we're one percent. Our population is one percent of the world population, and we have a very generous welfare state. And if you open the doors to the to the literally billions of impoverished third world people. And so you can come in, you can take advantage of our welfare. You know, they would be foolish not to. So we're simply too small to absorb this amount of people from the rest of the world. So we have to call a complete halt to immigration. And you're also calling for the assimilation of those who are already in your country. How do you go about assimilating people who don't want to be assimilated? Well, you have to do your best, basically. And at the moment, you know, the whole idea of multiculturalism is 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 to create division. You know, they're saying to you know they're saying to people, bring your culture with you, come come in as many numbers as you like, and do not assimilate into the local culture. And that's just a recipe for disaster, isn't it? You know, you can you can have you can have a multiracial society, but it only works when you have one culture. If you if you go down this road, you end up with Yugoslavia. And, of course, Yugoslavia fractured along racial, religious and tribal lines. And we're seeing this all over the place in Britain now. You know, there's racial division and hatred and, 
Now, the, the politicians talk all the time about what a wonderful country it is because we now have this, uh, this fantastic multicultural country with community cohesion and everyone's getting along with each other, but the whole thing is an absolute lie. People are not getting on with each other. There's tremendous strife and tension. Now, the local police chiefs in, in heavily Muslim areas or in heavily black areas are saying that uh, the, it's like walking on a knife edge and it's nerve-jangling. Now, this, no. is, this is the reality of multiculturalism. Your Prime Minister, David Cameron, has also come out and said that multiculturalism is a failure. The mm. official multiculturalism is a failure, as, as did Angela Merkel mm-hmm. from Germany. Has and, anything and changed? Sarkozy. And Sarkozy, of mm. course, yes. Has anything changed since your Prime Minister has actually come out and said multiculturalism is a problem? Has he done anything about it? No, of course not. Of course not. But uh, I, you know, I don't want to veer off multiculturalism, but... Ten years ago, Tony Blair came out and said that uh, progressive, comprehensive education had failed. And ten years later, it is, it's even worse than it was ten years ago. Not, you know, they say these things, but nothing is done about it at all. Hmm. So I noticed in the Freedom Party is not simply about Islam and the Islam question, even though that is the reason that you've become its leader. Mm-hmm. Can we go through some of the points here and, and maybe you can give us uh, an impression of what the British Freedom Party would do on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. For example, you do want to introduce a US-style First Amendment on free speech. Um, would that, as I said before, entail um, having Muslims speak as well? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that we have uh, Abu Hamza and... Uh, some other chap whose name I can't remember uh, at the moment, but the best thing you can do is to allow these people to speak, because the more they speak, the more we understand their real motivation. So the idea of trying to silence them is ridiculous. And you also have a platform to leave the European Union. What is it about the European Union that is um, that the British Freedom Party object to? Well, there, is, there are so many things to object to, that, but that the principal one, of course, is the fact that it is not democratic. You know, the most powerful man in, in Britain is not David Cameron. He's, a, he's in charge of a puppet government in Whitehall. The most powerful man in Europe uh, is uh, Mr. Barroso, and Mr. Barroso is an ex-Maoist. He's an unashamed ex-Maoist. Sixty million people killed in the Great Leap Forward. And this man is now the most powerful man in Europe. I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote him in. I can't vote him out. They're now passing 80% of our laws, and there's nothing I can do about this. That sounds like a good reason to leave. Absolutely. <laughs> Besides that, of course, there must be some other reasons. How about the euro? Now, of course, Britain hasn't even adopted the euro. No. So right. that you're, you're, are you somewhat sheltered from all the problems with the debt and the euro that's going on over there? Well, we're sheltered from being, from, you know, from being linked to the euro and having this, uh, this, this, this sort of two-tier, but it's not a two-tier, it's a, it's a one-tier zone, that you've got two tiers operating. You have, you have Germany on the one hand that produces and, and makes and, uh, and is a financial economic powerhouse, and then you have Greece that doesn't really do anything. Their debt to, ratio, debt to GDP is 160, I think. Mm. Whereas uh, in Ontario, here it's uh, 35%. So either we're producing a lot or the Greece are extremely lazy, which would we? I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> to say... Okay, I, 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 well, no, I'm going to. The, Greece, uh, the, the Greeks are essentially... It's hot. You know, they're a lazy people. It's, a, it's what it's like in these countries. But the, the, we are 
although we're not tied into the euro, we've now been tied into bailing out the eurozone countries. And this was the final stroke of a pen of uh, Alistair Darling, the outgoing uh, Labour Chancellor. And he actually signed us up on the day he left office. The day he left office, he signed us up that Britain would take part in bailing out failing Eurozone countries. And uh, you know, the most astonishing thing about this is that Britain is itself bankrupt. You know, we've got a, we, you know, we run an £80 billion pound a year deficit. Our debt is now up to a trillion. And that doesn't count things like uh, uh, future pension funds uh, for, the, for the state employees. That's another £1.3 trillion. So here we are, we don't, you know, we're bankrupt. We are bankrupt, but because we're slightly less bankrupt than Greece, we have to give Greece £9 billion. And David Cameron, our wonderful Conservative Prime Minister, said we will not, Britain will not bail out failing Eurozone countries. And then he said, and by the way, we're going to give £9 billion to the IMF. Really? And what will the IMF do with that money? They'll give it to Greece. Exactly. So what do you see for the future of Europe, including Britain, who is now obviously tied up with bailing them out? Uh, Greece just in- introduced some austerity measures. I don't think it's been actually passed by its upper chambers. No, it, but uh, when the lower chamber actually accepted them, there was rioting in the streets, looting, burning, pillaging, mm. the usual stuff. Do you see that as being just the uh, thin edge of the wedge? It's going to happen to the rest of uh, Europe and Britain as well? Well, I think it's going to get worse in Greece for a start, and I think that that will then go over into into Portugal and into Spain. Italy is on the the edge as well. We are all existing. Our problem is, or or, or Europe's problem is, is that it is awash with debt. It cannot cope. And the only way, apparently, to alleviate this is is to amass more debt so that we can actually pay for our debt from three months ago. And they keep on rolling this over and it gets bigger and bigger. And eventually, they won't be able to print any more money. They won't be able to magic any more money out of, out of thin air. And when that happens, I'm perhaps overly pessimistic. I've been predicting the, the economic demise of Europe for, for two years now. You know, I thought it would be in flames by now. But it is going to happen because you know, if something doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you can't go on propping it up forever. No. The education system as well, I would imagine that they have something to share the blame, uh, part of the blame of all the, uh, the socialism that's causing these debt problems and perhaps even for the multiculturalism. Can you give us a talk about what you might want to see changed with the British education system? Well, the very first thing I would like to see is, uh, is teaching children how to read and write. Good first step. You know, we have. Uh, we, when I was at school, five percent of the school population went on to university. Today, it's fifty percent, yes. and it's not because this forty-five percent have suddenly become incredibly, massively more intelligent over the last twenty years. They have simply dumbed down the entrance exams required to, to actually get into university to to such an extraordinary level now that uh, 50% of British universities provide remedial lessons in literacy and numeracy for their, for their first-year students. For graduates? For, yeah, for graduates. And I know a chap who has a degree in political science who cannot write a grammatical sentence. I mean, it's, uh, it's absolutely terrifying. That sort of fits in, though, doesn't it? 
political science and religious, <laughs> I think. Yes, it does. But in terms of, uh, in terms of, of uh, not just educating them properly, but in terms of, of the culture, you know, they, are, they are immersed in multiculturalism from a very early age in school mm. now. And we even have uh, three-year-olds being, not prosecuted, but being uh, marked down as, as racists simply for saying something as benign as yuck when they're given curry. You mustn't say yuck to curry because curry is an Indian food and you are now making some derogatory comment about a a different faith, a different culture, a different race. And they have these enormous 24-page racial incident cards that the teachers have to fill in. And these then go off to a government department. And the government department encourages teachers to submit these forms. It sounds quite Orwellian. It, it is. That's exactly the right word. There are something like 3,000 children, little children under the age of seven a year, are on their cards for life for being marked down as racists. It's, it, it's, it's obscene. And you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be back with more of my interview with British Freedom Party Chairman Paul Weston after this break. The country has seen much turmoil in the field of education. Schools have come in for a great deal of criticism and censure. Laugh-In News Report, however, wonders if all the fault lies with the school. I've had it. I've had it. That's it. It's over. No, that's it. I've had it. No, no. I don't want to discuss it. I've had it. What's the matter? What's the matter, huh? A kid just hit me in the mouth with a brick. That's what's the matter. Heavens, well, you told him that was very wrong. Oh, no. You didn't? Why not? Because I had the brick in my mouth. That's why you dummy. Miss Henry Rogers is right outside. We'll bring him in. I'll bring him in. Let's try to understand, Henry. After all, you must remember, he came from a broken home. I know. He broke it himself. Maybe you ought to send for his mother. I sent for her yesterday. Oh, well, fine. Bring her in. I'll get her. She's right outside. I'll bring her in. Hello, Mrs. Rogers. Good afternoon. I don't like to have to tell you this, but we're having a problem with Henry. He's using foul language and uh, violence. Foul language and violence? Yes, I'm afraid so. Why, you lousy little... Oh, Mrs. Rogers, Mrs. Mrs. Rogers. I was just thinking how long we could hold the Russians. Still, if we could persuade the Americans to strengthen their conventional forces... I don't think it'll make much difference. Oh? Well, apparently, the American troops in Germany are all so drug-ridden, they don't know which side they're on anyway. (laughs) And uh, during the last NATO exercises, the uh, US troops dispersed and picnicked in the woods with lady soldiers. (laughs) What about the other NATO armies? Oh, they're all right. On weekdays, anyway. Uh, yes, the Dutch, Danish and Belgium armies go home for the weekend. <laughs> so, on the whole, if the Russians are going to invade, we'd prefer them to do it between Mondays and Friday. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We're not taking any calls today, but you can send your comments about today's show to feedback at justrightmedia.org. And now back with my interview with British Freedom Party Chairman Paul Weston. Can we move now to the, um, the military where do you see the military in the British Freedom Party uh, government? <laughs> Alongside, it'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to be against them. <laughs> no, but you're actually asking for, um, and what I consider, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, more of a Ron Paul 
type of isolationist. Um, don't go anywhere where we're not directly threatened, I think is the words that the 20-point mm. plan uses. Right. Wouldn't that basically remove the British troops from everywhere in the world, perhaps except the Falkland Islands? Well, yes, it would. And, but uh, but why, why are we in Afghanistan? I have no idea. Why are we in Iraq? I have no idea. Now, this whole thing about the Twin Towers and George Bush and uh, 17 of those 19... Uh, suicide bombers were Saudi Arabian. We're not in Saudi Arabia. What are we doing in Iraq? What are we doing in Libya? What are we doing in Afghanistan? It's absolutely, it's crazy. And then you get to this, to, to, to a genuine thing where we should be somewhere, which is the Falkland Islands, and the the, the, the Argentinians are now rattling their sabers and they're saying they you know, they uh, they want them back. And David Cameron is responding, saying, "Just try it with uh, with the British." But he's got rid of our aircraft carriers. He's got rid of our, he's got rid of the Harriers that used to fly off them. He's uh, he's he's cut the navy, well, not him, but over the last ten years, the navy's been cut in half. It's probable that if the Argentinians went into the Falkland Islands today, we wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But that is the Falkland Islands are sovereign British territory, so I I would expect our armed forces uh, to intervene but not in all of these peculiar places in the world which go... I mean, look, it's been longer... It's half as long again as the Second World War yes. we've been in Iraq. It's uh, What are British soldiers dying and Now, with here? Syria, you have... Um, well, with Libya, we, the, the free world, civilised world, if you want to call it that, and I certainly do, got involved in the Libyan situation under the responsibility to protect provision of the United Nations. Exactly, yeah. As a matter of fact, it was a Canadian who actually co-wrote that, uh, Michael Mignatiev. Leader of the uh, past mm-hmm. leader of the Liberal Party, um, with Syria coming up now, basically in the civil war. I, I think perhaps maybe you can tell me your thoughts on this, whether or not we're going to be called to go to Syria as well. Would the British Freedom Party support something like that? Absolutely not. No, yeah. for those same reasons. Exactly the same reasons. And when they British politicians today have the have the similar delusions to, to pretty much everybody else. They actually seem to think that you can bring democracy to Libya and democracy to Iraq and democracy to Afghanistan. Of course you can't. They've never had democracy. They don't particularly want democracy. It's one thing to be going out dying to bring democracy somewhere, like Germany, for example, you know, during the war, you know, at the end of it it was Worthwhile, obviously, from defending ourselves, but, but but we also it was good in the long run for Germany. But why we are in these places that don't will never accept democracy, and apparently the only reason we're there is to provide democracy, is a ridiculous situation. That brings us to foreign aid, and you, uh, the British Freedom Party, would call for the abolishment of foreign aid, or would there be some foreign aid? Do you see any situation, any country which would, which you would actually support giving foreign aid to? No. I believe completely in emergency aid, when something terrible happens in a poor country. Like Haiti, then, for example? Yes, exactly. Then, then emergency aid. But giving aid to, to, to Pakistan and India, India has a space program. Yes. We are giving aid to a country with, with, with a space program. What on earth are we doing that for? And then if you look at the African countries... 
Of course, the African countries are poor, but it doesn't help the African people when we give aid to them. It just gets uh, appropriated by whichever dictator is in charge at the time. Uh, it goes towards his armour-plated limousines and his personal 747 jet or, or arms. You know, a lot of aid money ends up in these countries just going into the arms industry, you know, which propagates slaughter. So, no, I don't think we should be giving aid other than emergency aid to, to, to any other country at all. Now you're a tough-on-crime party as well, aren't you? We are. Yeah. Um, do you support a war on drugs? <sighs> we, we would have to look at it from, from, from two different points. There's, uh, there's recreational drugs, as they call them, and you cannot stop that. I don't think you can stop that. It's like prohibition. You know, it, it, it's already been driven underground. You, you either legalize it or you start killing the drug dealers. And we're not going to start killing the drug dealers. So you have to accept there's going to be an element of, of this going on. Would you legitimize that drug trade? Are we no. talking marijuana? No. So you keep the uh, marijuana as a uh, drug that would be enforced? Well, you have, a, you, you have certain personal use marijuana, which, you, which is legal. The dealing in it, would we want to, 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 to see this, this stuff uh, prescribed by some local drug uh, medical facility? I, I don't think so, but uh, it, it's heroin. You know, heroin actually kills people, and I would like to see heroin dealers serve lifetime prison sentences, and I would like to see mass volume drug dealers of, of cocaine and uh, this sort of drug, I would like to see them serve far tougher sentences when they're caught than they are at the moment. Would it be safe to say that you're soft on soft drugs and hard on hard drugs? Would that be an analysis that you'd agree with? I would probably go along with that, yeah. yeah. What is a Class A drug? Because I notice on your 20-point plan you have ensured that a no-Class A drugs policy is enforced. What is a Class A drug over in Britain? Well, heroin is class A. So the harder stuff, mm. more addictive stuff, mm. the stuff that actually kills people. Mm. But you know, we haven't we haven't totally formulated this whole drugs policy yet, because we you know when we talk about crime, low level crime, eighty percent of uh, of aggravated robbery and uh, house breaking and muggings, eighty percent of it is done just to get money for their next fix, mm -hmm. and. Softish on recreational drugs, but, but but we are going to have to become much tougher on this because old people living in these estates can't go out anymore because they get mugged, and it really is just for the just just for drug money. So we're going to have to do something about it. But as I say, we're not we're not a hundred percent formulated on this yet. Some of the more what I might consider to be contentious, and I don't know how the British people feel about these. But uh, in your twenty point plan again, you have promote morality. Mm -hmm. Now, would you feel perhaps that some people might think that you're being rather fatherly to say that we should be promoting morality? What kind of morality, whose morality, and how would you promote it? Well, p possibly they might, but the, the liberal left declared war on Christianity. And the guiding principles of Christianity, uh, the Ten Commandments, if you get rid of, uh, of, of biblical morality, which, which they've done, and if you then go on and introduce this, uh, this um, uh, moral, I can't think of the word, moral uh, relativism, and say there's actually no such thing as morality, 
And, and this, is, uh, this is what the liberal left are doing. But, you know, you go back to the hard left, to the communists. Lenin said that the morality is what drives the revolution. And this is, this is just a slightly softer form, softer form that we have now. But if you get rid of religious morality and you get rid of morality itself, you end up with what we see every Friday, Saturday night in, in British cities and towns across the country. Young people who have no concept of how to behave, no concept of, of, uh, of decency, no concept of civility. And... It, People will not go into city centres and town centres anymore because the young people are essentially savage. So we do need to introduce guidelines and standards of behaviour and discourse and civility, which all come under the umbrella, I think, of morality. Wouldn't that be rather difficult to have a top-down type of imposition rather than having that come from a a culture, a culture that's obviously been lost in in Great Britain? Well, yes, it comes through education. Mm. You know, middle-class parents still provide their children with moral codes, but a lot of the working-class children now don't have it at home, and they don't have it anymore at school. And this is this is a, it's a tragedy for them because they they grow up, they go off the rails, their lives are destroyed as a result of the fact that they never actually knew how to behave properly. And it's not their fault. You know, they're five, six years old. It's our fault for not providing them with the guidelines. You have a provision, I think, in your um, um, platform that the students actually wear a uniform. Is that is that correct? I don't believe it is. No. Is that in there? I must have read that in the uh, somewhere else. But uh, but yes, do you I, agree with such an uh, idea? Oh, absolutely, yes. Okay. You know, it uh, it provides them with a sense of pride in their in their school, a sense of pride in their community. So yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, your 20-point plan ends up with live by Christianity's golden rule, do unto others as thou wouldst be done by. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think there might be a danger of being labeled a Christian uh, party solely by the use of uh, a statement like that, rather than being accommodating to the um, very large, significant proportion of uh, Brits who are not? Christian. I think that uh, less than 60% of Londoners are actually Christian. Well, less than Don't 60% of Londoners are Brits, or, or, native, <laughs> or native British at least. But no, I don't have a problem with that at all. We, we still call ourselves a Christian country. In actual fact, we're probably more of a post-Christian country, but we are Christian. And it's interesting, when you, when you talk to people who maintain that they are not religious... And uh, I say, so why exactly are you like you are? You know, why are you who you are? And they say, well, it's just like I am. I said, but you're not a Hindu. You're not a Muslim. You're not a Zoroastrian. You know, you don't behave like these people. Why are you who you are? He says, well, I suppose possibly I've been formed by Christian culture, even though it was unknown to me at the time. So if you talk to them about it, they will admit, yes, of course, they're, they're part of a Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a tremendously Christian man myself. I'm I'm sort of agnostic, veering one way or the other, depending, depending on the day. But the guiding ethos of Christianity uh, is one of the, the founding uh, pillars of Western civilization. So it's incredibly important, and we should keep that going. There are some other baggage, if I want to use that term, associated with um, politicians who are trying to 
mold society in one way or another under a Christian umbrella. Perhaps it's um, being so close to the United States here in Canada mm-hmm. that we see um, what can go wrong with such a, a proposal, uh, especially things with hot-button topics like abortion, mm-hmm. uh, contraception, homosexuality, marriage uh, of gays. Where would the British Freedom Party stand on such controversial topics as those? Well, on, uh, on homosexual marriage, uh, we're against it. We have absolutely no problem with homosexuals. We don't care how they live their lives, but what we don't want to see is, is, is this sort of thing being, being legally legislated for. We will have nothing bad to say about them, but we do not want this stuff being, being, especially when it's propagandized towards school children as well, you know, saying, you know, you, you have choices. You know, you don't have to have a heterosexual marriage. You can have this and you can have that, which I think is completely wrong. If someone is homosexual, they should be allowed to live their lives without any interference from the state. But I don't think that it should be turned onto the other side and actually reinforced and and proposed as a as an equal uh, status to heterosexual marriage. I don't agree with that at all. Could there be some sort of uh, middle ground instead of recognizing it as a, a marriage and using that term? which has come up uh, to a lot of criticism here in Canada as well as using the term marriage and redefining it to include non-heterosexual couples. Mm. What about a uh, civil union without using that word? Would uh, British Freedom Party be open to something like that? To a civil union? Uh, it's one of these things that uh, the reason, the reason that, that marriage is important is that it, it gives you the, the, the legal safety net of, uh, of bringing up children. You know, if you get divorced, there's a financial settlement, uh, there's all these sort of things. Homosexuals can go, to a, can go to a lawyer's office and they can have some contract drawn up which they can sign. I don't want to see uh, this, this sort of stuff brought into state legislation. I don't agree with that at all. Okay, what about uh, abortion? Very hot topic in almost any society. In Canada, we have no abortion law whatsoever. A woman can get an abortion at any time. I'm not sure of the law in England. Is there a law against abortion or for uh, choice? Uh, only after, only after the uh, whether it's 29 weeks or uh, sorry, 29 weeks, 19 weeks or, or, or some such. Thing. So there is a limitation at beyond exactly. which you are not permitted yes, to have an abortion. Exactly. Um, where does the British Freedom Party stand on uh, those kinds of laws? I think, uh, I think that we would have to continue in exactly the same vein that uh, it's been running for the past. So no change? No, no change at all. My, my personal view on abortion is I think it's an absolutely terrible thing. But then there are, there are always instances where, where sometimes abortion is almost necessary. But it's, uh, it's one of those, as you say, very hot, contentious topics. Mm-hmm. And my personal view is not necessarily what we would say in the party. You know, the party is going to pretty much continue the way that it is at the moment. Can we go back for a moment to what is undoubtedly the most pressing issue, and that is, again, the Islam question. Do you, let me go back a bit, on our radio show we often ask our guests, is there a distinction that you might find between Islam and Muslims, or Islam and Islamism, or Islam and Sharia? 
what kind of distinction do you see between those four different things? Islam, Islamism, which is the politicization of Islam, Muslims themselves, and um, Sharia law. Well, it all depends over, over a period of time. Fundamental Islam, Islamism, is, uh, is, is obviously an immediate problem that has to be tackled. Sharia law is an immediate problem that has to be tackled. Islam itself does not have to engage in, in, in uh, aggressive acts. But Islam is a different civilization. Even a non-violent Islam is a different civilization. And that civilization is incompatible with our civilization, with Western civilization. And when you have a certain number of nice, quiet, moderate Muslims, that's fine. But when that number becomes too large, then suddenly their entire civilization comes into friction with your civilization. We're not at that stage yet. Our stage right now is more the, 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 the violent side of Islamism. But Islam is a different civilization. And uh, East is East and West is West and neither the twain shall meet. Is there any um, idea that perhaps Muslims themselves are not necessarily the root cause of any of this? It is the radicalized imams the mullahs who are preaching violence, uh, preaching jihad, but do you see any accommodation in British society for Muslims per se? Absolutely, yes. I think, uh, I think um, again, it comes down to time, because you take, for example, the first generation Muslims that started coming into Britain in the 1960s, and and they genuinely wanted to come to a, to a, to a, a more advanced and uh, civilised society. And they came here, and they came here to work. And they worked in horrible jobs in, 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 in northern uh, factory towns. And they, I think, are a, almost a completely, completely different generation to the, to the second and third generation Muslims who have been going... To the, to, the, to the mosque which had been built over the last 20, 30 years. And inside the mosques, you've got Saudi imams and Saudi funding. And this, of course, is hardline Wahhabist uh, funding coming in. So the, the children and the grandchildren of these essentially decent first-generation Muslims are becoming uh, dangerous. They're becoming, they're becoming uh, uh, indoctrinated, uh, fanatical, and they are an entirely different uh, kettle of fish to the, to, the, to the first ones. But even when you talk about the ones who are not indoctrinated, who want to live their lives quietly, it's a matter of numbers. And in 1960, there were 80,000 Muslims in Britain. By 1990, there were a million. By 2000, two million. By 2010, somewhere between three and four million. They've been doubling every decade. And if you progress that forward, You've got uh, 6 million by 2020, and they become 12 million, they become 24 million. Mm -hmm. And when you've got 24 million, it doesn't matter if they're moderate anymore. You know, the point is, they are now outnumbering you in the under 40-year-old age demographic, and they will probably want to live their lives in a slightly different manner than us, right. even without violence and terrorism. And that is going to be an enormous pressing situation in years to come. To wrap up, I want to ask you where you think that the British Freedom Party is going to go in the future. Are you going to run a full slate in the 2014-2015 election? How many is that? 630-odd 
seats. Uh, 649. 649 now? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I'm going by the 2010 stats, which showed 631 seats being contested by the Conservatives. I would hope that they ran a full slate, did they? They, uh, they didn't run it in one place, or, or there's a problem in one place. You're, I'm sure you're right. You've researched this, uh, uh, which I haven't. If it's 631, then we will be going... For Unless the, they've changed the boundaries, maybe it is 649. Well, it's, it's so hard to keep up. Tony Blair changed the boundaries uh, continuously in order to, to, uh, you know, to cement further, further obviously, Labour seats in, uh, in, the, in the cities, exactly. Mm. But yes, we, know we will be running in, uh, in, in all of the constituencies in, in 2014, 2015. And House of Lords as well, you'd have people standing for that? I understand that that goes by proportional representation. You'd have a slate that you would put forward if you get a certain percentage. Is that correct? To be honest with you, I don't know anything about that at all. House of Lords, pretty, uh, pretty redundant or a pretty uh, toothless body, just as it is in Canada, perhaps. Well, yes, it is, and it's uh, it, the House of Lords was emasculated by by Tony Blair again, you know, because they actually, you know, when legislation goes through, it's passed by the House of Commons, it goes to the House of Lords, it goes to royal assent, mm-hmm. and of course, all these hereditary peers in the House of Lords were a bit of an obstacle to Tony Blair, so he said, "We're not going to have hereditary peers anymore." We're going to start electing people into the House of Lords. And uh, A, it's toothless, and B, it's now, it's now politicised. Now, the beauty of it in the old days was it was not politicised. But to the Liberal left, if these guys sitting in there have got some money and some pedigree and some, and some education, they are a threat to left-wing ideology. No matter that, of course, they're, they're not. These are good, decent people who want to see the best for, for the country, regardless of which politician or which political party is actually passing legislation. And what of the European Union? A slate of candidates to fill some seats there as well? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll certainly be doing that. Even though we objected the European Union, you're going to work from within to help demolish it? Well, it's one of those funny things, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you do have to get in there. I, I don't think it's particularly important to get in there, but, but, but uh, we're, you know, we, we will be running for it. The most important thing, because time is rapidly running out now, is we, we or a similar party have to get into power. And if we don't, then what we're doing now at the very least, will enable mainstream politicians, you know, the David Camerons of this world, if they see that we are able to say things and to get away with it and to, and to get a lot of uh, a good, positive public reaction to it, they might start stealing our ideas. And I don't care. And I'm not a politician, really. I've never been uh, interested in politics. It was only when I realised that someone's got to do something that, I, you know, that I'm doing what I'm doing now. But if they steal our ideas and we're just kicked into the, in, into the distance, good. As long as our ideas are going to change the course that our country is taking at the moment, then I don't care who does it. Mm-hmm. And perhaps a final question. Where would you stand on Scottish nationalism? You're a nationalist party in a sense, aren't you? Believe in the nation state according to your 20-point plan. So I'm just curious what you would do with a referendum that went in favour of Scotland's independence. Well, Scotland... When I talk with the nation state, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually talking in, in, in terms of England, in terms of Great Britain, as the, as the union. I don't want to see Scotland hived off. I don't want to see Wales hived off, which, which of course, the European Union operates under a divide and rule policy. A balkanisation of states, yes. Yes, exactly. And 
we have a 300-year union. We've done fantastic thing in the last 300 years. And, of course, chopping us all up is going to make us weaker and disunited, all the sort of things that the European Union likes and wants. I want us to remain as Great Britain. Paul Weston, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to a recorded interview I had with Paul Weston, the chairman of the British Freedom Party, while in Toronto on a speaking tour of the United States and Canada. Video of this interview, along with a video of Mr. Weston's speech to a gathering of supporters of the International Free Press Society, can be found on our website, justratemedia.org, as well as my own site, robertvaughan.ca, and my YouTube channel, which is called Laissez-nous-faire. You can spell that. <laughs> if you have any comments you'd like to share on what you've heard today, please get hold of Bob or myself at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And so, until next week, this is Robert Vaughn for Bob Matt saying, you know what to do, think right, do right, be right back here next week. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be so the torpedoes don't work either. Oh, no, no, no. It's only the new ones that don't work. The others are fine. The ones that were designed during the Second World War. Over 40 years ago. Well, yes, but they had lots of testing. You can't afford luxuries like that with the modern ones. Why not? Well, if there's a nuclear war, Prime Minister, it won't last long enough for the weapons to be tested. Bernard, are there other things I don't know about the defence of the United Kingdom? Uh, I don't know, Prime Minister. I don't know what you don't know. (laughs) 